0: Tonight's reading from the New Testament, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly, exceedingly astonished, and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Would you please join me as we pray? Lord, this is a a strong, challenging word. I pray you would help us to see your heart in it. In Christ's name, amen. In 2011, Foster Huntington created a blog called the Burning House Blog, and he invited people to post photographs on the blog of what you would take if your house were burning down. Now, some of the things were expected, Um, you know, uh, a passport, an iPhone, a hard drive full of pictures, the ashes of a cremated loved one, but some of them were unexpected, an old belt that a grandfather wore in World War II, a a box of dog treats, a Lego helicopter, and even matches. Who would have thought of that, right? And he said, he, he started this, his motivation was, he wanted to know how people define themselves by their possessions. Now, Jesus poses a similar but opposite question. He asks, in a life or death situation, what would you leave behind? As he asks the question of eternal life and possessions. And it's a man who comes up to him very earnest. He sees Jesus leaving, and he runs and he falls down, and he asks Jesus this question, but he knows a few things, some important things. First of all, this man knows that life is more than possessions because he bothers to ask the question, how do I inherit eternal life? He also understands that there are moral requirements for entering eternal life. He talks about commandments and goodness, so in some sense he understands that right now counts forever. And then lastly, he understands that God is the judge of who enters eternal life. And that's challenging challenging for our day and age where people will confidently assert, oh, this person's gone to a better place, this person has gone to a better place. He understands, well, God is the ultimate judge of that. But there's something very important he doesn't understand. He doesn't see how his possessions and his wealth are hindering him from the very question that he's after. He doesn't see that. Now, We have to first understand, and I mention this every time we talk about money, the Bible does not condemn profit, it does not condemn wealth. In fact, sometimes it speaks very positively about it. Uh, Money is not the root of evil, love of money is the root of evil, that's important. And this commandment that Jesus gives for this particular man doesn't mean it's a universal commandment for everybody. He precedes something in this man. But at the same time, Jesus makes some general statements that show there's some real relevance here to all of us. And that we might understand this, that one of the primary reasons that people don't find God or seek God or stay with God is because of their possessions, because of their money, And in our culture where Americans typically believe that only 1% of people are upper class, right? There's a perspective change we need. I mean, I think we tend to believe that someone is rich if they're just a couple stages above us, right? We don't typically, we look up to think whether someone's rich. We don't look down to see how people perceive us. But we need to take heart here in this challenging passage. Why? Because Jesus looks at the man. The Greek word is actually he scrutinizes the man. He looks him from the inside out. He's looking at you and I from the inside out, and he loves him. He has compassion on him. He's ready to help. Are you ready to receive? And so let's look at this challenging topic of our possessions. And I want to look at it through three, or rather two ideas. Our possessions and our identity and our possessions and grace. Okay, let's look at those two things. First of all, our possessions and identity. This past week I read an article that was in the British Psychological uh, Journal or Society Journal. And the article was on the relationship between our stuff and ourselves. And there were lots of good insights. First of all, that relationship between our stuff and ourselves begins really early. You know, they they noticed how uh, a fourth of all conflicts with 22-month-olds was about possessions, the stuffs they had. They seemed to see that for two and four years, uh, two two to four-year-old, there's an assumption, a rule that they operate from. It's uh, basically the first one who has it always possesses it. Even if someone else takes it, right, it's yours because you had it first. They did a study of three- to four-year-olds, and they said, uh, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go up to these three-, year, three to four-year-olds, and they basically had an exact, uh, well, they didn't have one. They said this, give us uh, this precious possession of yours. They didn't use that language. They said, you know, give us your blanket, give us this thing, and we will give you a, an exact one like it. Most of the kids wouldn't fall for it. No way. And the ones that actually handed it over, as soon as they handed it over, they burst out in tears, right? The thought of giving it up. And it carries into our teenage years. Studies have shown that when teenagers receive flattery from their peers, their desires for material possessions go down. Uh, Girls, when they share clothing, it's not just sharing clothes, they're sharing friendship. It's actually an overlapping of identity that's happening. And for adults, we often know that our possessions mean more than just possessions. Uh, Someone who actually lost their house in a fire said this, it isn't just a house, our homes are our foundations, retaining in their walls memories and all the experiences that happen within them. Our possessions represent stories, and they represent relationships. I mean, do any of you here have a keepsake from a loved one that passed on? Yeah, quite a few of you do. I do. Why do you have it? Because of the story it represents. Now, the reason I'm saying this is we have to be, we we can't be too quick to write this guy off as just this heartless materialist. You know, this guy that just cares about things. His identity is mixed up with his possessions in the same way that our identities get mixed up in our possessions. He has a case of dragon sickness. If you've seen the movie The Hobbit, right? Thorin oakenshield He gets around all that dragon gold and he loses himself. This man has lost himself. He's possessed with his possessions. And I have to say, I can relate. I don't know about you, but if I lose my phone or a house key or my wallet, I can't think about anything else. I'm obsessed. I'm possessed. Where are these things? It's like my whole life is bound up in this thing that I possess. And it's not just losing things, it's finding things that possesses us. Finding that car, just the right make and right model and even the right color that we want. That perfect wedding dress, the best barbecue ribs, that digital camera we have to have. And if we happen to go to the store and they're out of stock, it's a travesty, right? How can, how can you be out of stock? What sort of place is this? What sort of business is this that you would be out of stock? Forbes magazine has uh, online, uh, has a little uh, article that says, this is your brain on shopping. And they basically talk about how um, the pleasure center of the brain is activated. But it's not just our brains, it's our heart and our soul as well, isn't it? Um, Two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus talking about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And in it, he said, those that try to save their lives will lose their lives. And as we looked at that, I told you that that word life essentially means core identity. Now, remembering that, bear in mind, and I want you to think about the man who we just read about and this this challenge that Jesus gives. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For, for, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He's lost his core identity in the things that he's had. And again, I think it's very easy for us to hear Jesus' warning and say, that warning is for people that love to sit on a big pile of money and, and laugh and count it. Those are for people that are just obsessed with making more and more. I think we'd like to think that, but it's more hidden and subtle than that, isn't it? I mean, it may show up in your life in a hesitancy to invite that family over that has the kids that climb all over your furniture, right? Or maybe it's um, you walk into another person's home and you feel shame about your home. Or maybe it's your balance runs low or the stocks go down and you find yourself gripped with fear. Or maybe it's depression because you realize it's likely that your income will not go up for the rest of your life. All these ways that show us the way we are possessed by our possessions. In that journal I quoted, there was this insight that uh, people who find less satisfaction... And community and traditional sources like family, country, and religion turn to alternative sources in the marketplace. See, what we're understanding here is that our materialism isn't ultimately a problem with things. It's a problem with relationship. It's a problem of relationship primarily. Do we look at it that way? Do we understand it that way? And that's why Jesus exactly offers relationship, doesn't he? He says, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. Relationship with those that typically you wouldn't be associated with. And you will have treasures in heaven. I'll explain that in a second. And come, follow me. Jesus offers himself in place of this man's possessions. He says, come and be with me. Come and enter a relationship with me and my people and my followers. And when he talks about treasures in heaven, if you begin to read the Bible, you understand what the treasures are. The book of Proverbs says, to know God is silver and gold. In the book of Jeremiah we read, let not the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord. And then Revelation 20, the pinnacle, right? Heaven. You're in heaven. What do we find? That... uh, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned, and a loud voice that said, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with women, And they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. Do you see the great prize of life is to know God and be known by God. That's what he's talking about. And when we come to know God and be known by God, we also come to understand what the book of Deuteronomy said, that we are His treasured possession you understand that Jesus was saying let go of your treasures that you might know that you are my treasured possession and the more you and I can let go of those things the more we find ourselves letting go into the heart of God and it's not just an experience that we experience now we can taste it you know Meg's grandmother used to always say uh, my family is my million dollars Well, in the gospel, God says, my family is my billion dollars. And you get to draw on some of that money now. The disciples said to Jesus, you know, uh, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, I don't know if you noticed this. He says, there is no one who has left, not left everything, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come. Now, some people read that and go, okay, that's sort of the health, wealth, the prosperity thing. If I pray and I'm in faith, I get it all now. I would say that's a superficial reading. Number one, he is saying we get to taste something now. He's also going to say it's still going to come with persecutions, but what is it? It's the community of God. It's the mothers, the brothers, the houses belong to people. The apostles would go out and preach, and how would they be provided for? They didn't have anything. It would be the community of God that provided for them. It would be the relationships. That's the blessing. It's the possession of God's people. I will tell you, I have been blessed a hundredfold by you. By your rich uh, encouragement to me. By your rich patience and support, by your rich asking how's Meg feeling, how are your kids doing, by your love. By blessing me with your house. Blessing me with your finances. But it's the community that blesses me. It's the relationship. And as we begin to experience the relational side of it, the relationship between our possessions changes. Maybe we're not no longer asking, what's the return of my investment, but rather are the people that are making this stuff on investment in, are they being treated morally? Or maybe it's the relationship to our money and the poor. I hope you noticed with that when that man, when Jesus recounted those commandments to the man, he slipped in one. Anybody notice what he slipped in? You can peek. What's one there that's normally not there? You got the Ten Commandments before you. You didn't think you were going to get a test today. Presbyterian preachers usually don't talk to their audience, right? Their, their congregation. Anybody see it? Defraud. He mentions defraud. And then he mentions go sell to the poor. Could it be that this man had made his money by defrauding the poor? It's likely. And so Jesus speaks to him. So our relation to money and justice changes. Our relationship to money and race changes. As we wrap up Black History Month, we can't help but remember that this country was built on the backs of slaves and immigrants. It was built on the backs of people that were economically oppressed. And today it doesn't look a whole lot better, does it? I mean, stats last year were that an African-American household makes 60% less than a white household. And so our relationship between money and race begins to change. Our relationship between money and God's ministry. Do you love to give to the work of God? And listen, the money, we say this regularly. And we've been trying to to grow in this way, our congregation. It's not the amount of money. Jesus made that clear with the widow. It's the amount of money. God, it's not... He is looking at, does someone have the trust and love for me that they regularly give to my ministry? I'm asking you, do you see money in relational terms? Do you see it as an identity issue? Because it is as we enter into our relationship with God. But lastly... It's not only just our possessions and our identity, it's our possessions in grace. This man claims to have kept all the commandments, except the first and foremost one. Do not have any other gods before me. And if you break the first one, you've broken all of them. So essentially, he has broken all the commandments, but he doesn't understand it. Jesus uncovers that wealth is the functional God in this man's life, and it's also his source of salvation. It's the way the man hopes to be justified and delivered. Ultimately, this is the true danger of wealth and possessions. You know what it is? That we turn to it in our time of need instead of God. That's the true danger. That in our time of need, we can turn to it instead of God. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine I'm a very, very wealthy person. And imagine that someone I love gets sick. Well, I can turn to my money and I can fly them to the best doctor in the country, the best country in the world. If I'm on standby, I can pull out my platinum level and work my way up the chain, right? And get this last seat in the place. If the planes all get canceled in the airport, I'm not going to sleep in the airport overnight. I'm going to go sleep in a hotel. Or if, my, or if my kid struggles in school, I have the resources not to keep them in that school, but I can actually take them to a place where they get the best testing, they get the best school, they get the best tutors, and if I make a nice donation, I might get them into the best college. If I have money and resources, it changes my legal problems, doesn't it? I can hire the best lawyers or maybe the best psychiatrist to declare that my mental state made me do it. Affluence, right? Affluenza. As they call it. Where a non wealthy person has no choice to turn to prayer and God, a wealthy person is going to be tempted to turn to their money and resources. That's the challenge. So when you find desperation and challenge, whatever resources you have, where do you go first? You find that yourself, you're praying to God. And again, I've said this before, you know, poverty doesn't get you to heaven. Riches doesn't get you to heaven. But the reason Jesus had success among the poor was because they had nowhere else to go but God. And this is why it's so hard. And it's not just external needs, it's internal needs. A wealthy person, if they're struggling with their self-image, maybe the way they look, they can go buy a bunch of clothes. Or if they, don't, if they feel like they're overweight, they don't have to go on Biggest Loser. They can go to a nice ranch and lose weight, right? There's ways that wealth can deliver us in all sorts of ways. Or maybe they get treated in a way where everybody knows their name. Usually when you're wealthy, people treat you with a lighter touch. When you walk into the room, they give you a little bit more respect. Do you hear all these things? Honor, favor, deliverance. It's the gospel. That's what it is. Wealth emerges and it becomes the gospel, and God is the only one that can truly do that. He's trying to deliver this rich man from living on his deathbed, realizing wealth lied to me. It couldn't be my status. It couldn't be my money. It couldn't really be my freedom. The reason it's so hard for a materialist to get into heaven is because materialism is one of the greatest work salvation business. Materialism is ultimately work salvation Where through that, I can justify myself to the world. I can find favor before the world. I can be my own gospel before God. That's why Jesus is so after it. Jesus doesn't want that man to experience that. He loves them, so he requires, I want you to sell everything. Why? Because he's trying to teach him to live by grace alone. That he might be saved by grace alone. That he might come to God with the empty hands of faith. And that he might learn with the open hands of faith that he might experience that. That's why Jesus goes after this man. That's why he loves him. But it's exceedingly hard. Jesus says it's exceedingly hard. It's like a camel going through the eye of the needle. And sometimes, you know, there's different interpretations. Was that a like a wall called the eye of the needle and the camel? No, it's, he's just saying a camel through the eye of a needle. The obvious interpretation, Jesus is using a little bit of comedy there. But it's a heavy circumstance, right? Because the disciples, when they hear this, they go, who in the world can go to heaven? Because in those days, it was believed that rich people had favor with God. Like in some pockets of the church, it's taught. And so they just couldn't understand. But the real reason that they were astonished, because the gospel of grace is shocking. It is shocking to truly have to live only by grace. I've quoted this before, you know, the only thing you need to come to Jesus into salvation is nothing, and most people don't have it, right? We might carry into it our possessions, it might be our status, it is so hard just to live poor, naked, and miserable, and blind, and let God clothe you, as the book of Revelation says. But the good news is, we need some good news right now, what's impossible with man is possible with God. It's possible with God. And Jesus gives that hope that by His power, He can do that. He can make someone that is in bondage to their possessions an incredibly generous Christian. And I've met lots of generous Christians that way. I've met them in this community. People that are free with their possessions. He can take the person that has been dealt a bad hand and struggles to make it day-to-day and that they would not be envious and think that wealth is their deliverance, that they have joy in the Lord, and I know them in this congregation. By God's power, he has been doing this in our midst, hasn't he? And he's going to continue to do it with you and me. So here's what I'll leave you with. Every time you and I experience those little losses or gains, every time we don't get that promotion, every time someone robs us, every time those possessions are taken, whatever it would be, every time that kid spills cranberry juice on your chair, whatever it would be, we can say to ourselves, God wants me for himself. I belong to God. My identity's in him. And second of all, he's trying to teach me to live by grace alone. Let's pray that he'll help us to do that. God, thank you so much that you stay after us because you love us. Would you deliver us? In Christ's name, amen.